This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Okay, I'd like to like to get started. This is the uh, fourth in a series of, 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 of four debates about, about how, uh, how uh, the structure of, of social inequality is changing as we move, move, into, the, move into the next century. Uh, the debate series is, is hosted by the Center for the Study of Poverty and Inequality and co-sponsored by, by IRIS, by CCSRE, by the Stanford Center on Ethics, and by the Ethics in Society program. What we're going to be doing today is taking on the question of how gender inequality is, is changing, uh, what types of futures might be envisioned for gender, gender inequality, and, and what types of social policy might, might be deemed appropriate in light of those, in light of those possible futures. Uh, so, 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 so the topic is straightforward. Uh, as, as, as for the introductions, uh, I, I'm David Grusky, as, as many of you know, and, and my only job here is a simple one, and I may be able to handle it, simple one of, of introducing our, our two very, very special guests today. Uh, first, we have uh, Cecilia Ridgway, who's uh, uh, the Lucy Stern Professor in the Social Sciences uh, here at Stanford University and is uh, unarguably the, the world's authority on, on, on how it is that, that, that gender inequality is, is constructed through individual level interactions and, and, and converted into this, this hulking macro level phenomenon that, that it is. So it's a real honor to, to have her here with us today, all the more so, I should say, because this is her sabbatical. So she's donating a, a valuable day of her sabbatical for this enterprise. Uh, second, we have Tron Peterson, who's a professor at, at, at UC Berkeley in the Department of Sociology and also at the Haas School of Business. Uh, and again, one of the, one of the leading authorities on, on how gender inequality is changing, uh, having... having uh, uh, made path-breaking path contributions to the study of, of the sources of the gender pay gap and also the, the, the sources of the, of the glass ceiling. As for the format, it's going to be straightforward, same format as we've had in the past, namely uh, Cecilia will start and give a 20-25 minute presentation followed by, by Tron giving a presentation of the same length and then we'll, we'll, we'll allow them to make any brief responses as, as they may wish, and then turn to questions from the floor. So first, Cecilia, welcome. As long as that doesn't say Tron Peterson up there, I guess we're okay. Um, Okay, the first thing, the first point I want to make um, is that in thinking about this is to, really something that David made, which is that gender uh, inequality in the United States is a multi-level system of social practices, right? It includes all kinds of things in the, at the macro level in the labor force. It also uh, interpersonal behaviors and organizational practices and also, of course, identities at the individual level. It seems to me that to understand where it's going right now, to understand where gender inequality is going and therefore what to do about it, we have to locate within this multi-level system where the principal dynamic is that's currently maintaining and recreating gender inequality. And I argue that the driving force behind gender, whoops, excuse me, where are we? What happened there? I see we didn't go to slideshow. Sorry, 
it is, it is a straightforward matter. There we go. Sorry about that. Anyway, off to um, <laughs> confused beginning. But um, okay, so what I want to argue is that the driving force behind gender is a distinct system of difference and, um, and inequality right now. And by distinct, I mean something in and of itself, not something that is merely a gloss over, um, over a political difference or something of that sort. As a distinct system of difference and inequality, that the driving force behind it right now is at the interpersonal level in this multi-level system. And it derives from gender's deep-seated role as an organizing force in social relations. Sex categorization, which is just the routine process of labeling people as male or female every day, is in fact, I'll argue, much more than it appears. It's a fundamental cultural and cognitive tool that people use to frame and organize an even more fundamental human activity, which is relating to another person, either in person, on paper, over the internet, or even imaginatively. From the perspective of individuals, social life and society in general are, are basically produced, enacted through multiple contexts in which we as individuals define ourselves in relation to others in order to comprehend what's going on and act. To successfully manage these social relational contexts, people need to have some shared cultural systems for, for categorizing and defining yourself in relation to the others in the context so you can anticipate how the other person is going to behave and act in response. Now, studies of social cognition suggest that a very small number of these category systems in a given society, maybe three or four, serve as primary categories, things that you fit, must know first about people. Um, primary categories define those things that you have to know about another to render that person sufficiently meaningful in cultural terms that you can even open your mouth and relate to them. Possibly because sex category is a simple dichotomous classification and it's relevant to heterosexuality and to reproduction, possibly because of those things, evidence suggests that sex category is virtually always one of a society's primary category systems. In the United States, of course, race and age are also primary category systems. In fact, social cognition research has shown that people automatically, unconsciously, and almost instantly sex categorize any concrete person that they consider themselves in relation to. And they do this even when they have a million other ways to think of that, that person that might be more relevant to the situation, like institutional roles or whatever. So we can think abstractly about an ungendered boss or employer, but we can never relate to even imaginatively, a specific boss or employee without gendering them first. Now, we can speculate on the, uh, that the origins of sex categories, a primary cultural category system, lie in its relevance for heterosexuality and reproduction. Whatever the origins, however, um, sex categories role as a fundamental cultural tool for framing any social relation carries sex and gender far beyond home and reproduction in the family. If we can't comprehend another person sufficiently to relate to them without sex categorizing them first and making salient our own sex category by implication, then sex, gender, and all the cultural meanings associated with it will be pulled in some degree into every sphere of social life that is enacted through social relations. It's the use of sex, gender as a relational slide, I'm keeping up with the forecast here, um, 
It's the use of sex gender as a relational framing device that embeds, I argue, um, gender into positional inequalities within political, economic, and family activities. In the course of making, using gender to make sense of relations, while we are conducting political, economic, uh, and uh, family relations, we embed gender meanings into those roles. And I will argue that process is still going on, and we continue to embed them in those roles um, into the future. And yet, I will also argue that although gender becomes embedded in these other institutions, it is driven by its own logic as a framing device and as a result brings its own interest and dynamics to social relations so that it's never fully encapsulated by any given structure of positional inequalities. Um, although we tend to assume that sex categorization is natural, uh, in everyday social relations, of course, it's thoroughly social. It relies on uh, cues of behavior and appearance that are culturally presumed to stand for physical sex differences. In fact, sex gender is a cultural system for framing self-other relations precisely because it is based on widely shared beliefs about what the distinguishing characteristics of males and females are and how they're going to behave. That's what you, what, what you want to know in order to coordinate your behavior with them. We often think of these shared cultural beliefs as stereotypes, and of course they are stereotypes, but there are more too. Widely shared beliefs, in fact, are the cultural rules for perceiving and enacting gender as a distinct system of difference and inequality. As a result, it's those beliefs, I'm going to argue, that are key to the maintenance or change of gender inequality at present. We, these are the rules, and these are the ones we have to change. Okay, now studies show that roughly consensual gender beliefs do indeed exist right now. In other words, if you hope that we don't have gender stereotypes, give it up, we do, um, we have them. Um, and these gender stereotypes have status beliefs at their core, so they imply inequality as well as difference between men and women. Status beliefs define members of one group as more status-worthy and generally competent than those of another group, while granting each group its specialized skills. Contemporary gender beliefs view um, men and women as more agentic and more competent at the things that count most in society, right? Particularly instrumental rationality in our society. Women are viewed as less competent in general, but better at more feminine communal tasks. Even those tasks, those tasks themselves are thought of as le less uh, valued. Um, gender stereotypes like this are consensual in that most people know them and recognize them as the social rules of the gender game by which other people will judge them, whether or not they themselves endorse the stereotypes. As a cultural device for framing social relations, gender is then, above all, a system of social difference whose utility lies in the assumption that if you classify an actor in a particular way, they can be expected to behave differently than if they're classified in the other category. Yet, an extensive body of research has demonstrated that difference alone creates cognitive biases about better, who's better, right? And if gender is a system of social difference for framing social relations and, and coordinating, facilitating the coordination of joint behavior amongst individuals, then competing views of who is better are an impediment to mutual relations that may be difficult to sustain over the long run. Um, under conditions of long-term mutual dependence between groups, sociologist Mary Jackman has shown that competing in-group preferences tend to be transformed by one means or another into shared status beliefs. 
That is, members of both groups come to agree or at least concede that as a matter of social reality, one group is more respected and status-worthy than the other. And in our kind of achievement-oriented society, that status is expressed in presumptions about competence. Um, Okay, so virtually all men and women have to regularly and repeatedly enter into cooperative relations with members of the other sex in order to get what they want and need in life. And those conditions of intense mutual cooperative interaction put unusually strong structural pressures on gender as a system of shared beliefs about difference to also be a system of shared beliefs about the status ranking of men and women. That means, of course, that difference creates inequality, and inequality sustains difference in these, inter in these gender beliefs, and we have to keep that in mind in trying to change them. Since status beliefs root inequality in group membership itself and not in some other attribute, they constitute gender as a distinct organizing principle of inequality that's not fully reducible to differences in power or physical strength or material resources or anything of that sort. Okay. Um, as a primary cultural system for framing social relations that implies both difference and hierarchy then, gender creates a distinct set of interests for actors. And these interests affect the energy with which you and I enact gender in different social contexts and also the energy with which we resist challenges to existing gender relations. So they have to be taken into account in thinking about gender change. What are these differences? Well, the first set is pretty obvious, right? If gender status beliefs give men and some women who benefit from their dependence on them an interest in maintaining the presumption of men's greater competence and status worthiness, basically male privilege. In my view, though, those aren't likely to be the most powerful interests right now that are sustaining the gender system because gender creates another set of interests, which in some ways are deeper. Um, since gender is so um, fundamental to the process by which people render themselves comprehensible to themselves and other in, soci uh, in society in ways that are socially valid, make yourself a meaningful, valid person, to make yourself a man or a woman. As a result, both men and women have deep cognitive interests in maintaining a reasonably clear, stable framework of beliefs that define who men and women are by differentiating them. And those strong interests create a deep reservoir of resistance to any real erasure of gender difference. And yet, of course, the preservation of uh, uh, beliefs in gender difference make, mean you have to be on the alert for gender inequality. So this is the difficult cultural nexus that needs to be unwound to solve the problem of gender inequality, um, in my view. Um, okay, let's get a little more specific here. If gender beliefs, uh, um, if cultural beliefs about gender provide a blueprint for enacting gender and social relations, exactly how do they do that, and how does it contribute to inequality? Okay. First of all, it's, uh, research shows that simply sex categorizing another in a situation automatically evokes gender stereotypes in your mind, primes them to affect your behaviors and judgments. That means that the stereotypic rules of the gender game are virtually always implicitly available uh, to shape behavior and social relations. Um, but the very things that make gender so useful as an initial first start to making sense of another, its simple dichotomous nature, also limited its ability to tell you very much about the other person, to take you very far. People always go on to categorize people in a million other ways, usually in more detailed and specific ways, usually institutional roles that give you a more concrete idea of how the person's likely to act. Gender, by contrast, typically acts as a 
background identity, a kind of ghost in the background in social relations. It is an identity that is not itself the focus of the actor's attentions, and that is important to the nature of its effects. Think about how gender is a background identity in student-teacher interactions in the classroom. The situationally focal identities of student-teacher define the actor's central behavior, but gender as a background identity imports an added set of meanings that may implicitly modify how actors perform the activities defined by their focal student-teacher identities, and that's how gender works. Okay, now, the extent to which gender stereotypes actually do modify or bias people's behavior and judgments in a given situation depends entirely on the context. It can vary from imperceptibly, you can hardly tell, or substantially, making very dramatically different behaviors. And a lot of evidence supports this. The more salient or relevant gender is for actors in the, in the setting, the greater its effects on the behavior. So a highly gendered situation, bigger effects. Uh, a situation in which it's rather suppressed, much less effects. At a minimum, evidence suggests, however, that gender is typically effectively salient. That is salient enough to measurably affect behavior in two broad classes of settings, mixed sex settings and settings that are culturally linked to one sex or the other. In these settings, widely shared gender stereotypes create implicit expectations for an actor's own as well as the other's behavior, and these expectations often have self-fulfilling effects on actual behavior. Um, the impact of gender expectations are especially consequential for gender inequality in the, um, their in the workplace and, again, in the home, in both places. Um, when people work together on a shared goal, as is typical in the workplace or classroom, but also in a lot of family settings, a, lo a lot of evidence shows that influence hierarchies tend to develop among the people working together and that these organize their goal-oriented behavior. These hierarchies are based on expectations actors form about their relevant co relative competence at goal-related activities. When gender is effectively salient, as it often is in these situations, cultural beliefs about men's greater instrumental competence, women's greater expressive competence, and men's greater status worthiness implicitly bias the expectations that participants form for their own competence compared to others. Biased expectations, in turn, have been shown to bias controlling for actual competence, the likelihood that people speak up in a situation, whether others pay attention to them, listen to them if they do, how their suggestions are evaluated, whether they become influential, and the extent to which others and they themselves are willing to credit themselves with high ability based on their performance. The greater status worthiness associated with men also biases the extent to which people accept men uh, rather than women as legitimate authorities. Taken together, these effects of gender status um, create a number of effects. They basically modestly advantage men over women in mixed sex but gender neutral settings. They advantage men more strongly in male type settings like engineering and math classes but also home repair. Um, in female type settings like nursing or childcare, gender status and competence please slightly advantage women, not men. Men, however, advantage for positions of actual authority, not just influence, even in female type settings which can sometimes include the home. Um, okay. What I'm arguing is that all these effects, subtle effects of these competence expectations create an array of often subtle processes that are everywhere and yet nowhere because they're in the implicit taken-for-granted background of what's happening in both the workplace and in the home. Okay, these implicit stereotype biases affect not only how others treat a given man or woman but also how that man or woman judges him or herself. Consequently, in the labor force, 
They affect both demand factors, like in demand for labor, things like employee preferences, as well as supply factors, like student and workers' judgments of what they're good at, what they're interested in, what they should pursue as a career. The demand and supply processes created by implicit gender biases in social relations together promote the persistent tendency to gender type jobs, including newly developing jobs. I mean, we could just stop gendering, uh, gender typing jobs now, but we don't. New jobs develop, they get typed. Why is that? I say it's through these kinds of processes. Um, they contribute as well to the lower status, the lower status of women's jobs compared to men and to gender inequality and outcomes like pay and authority. These same implicit biases shape relations in the home as well. As progress has been made in reducing gender inequality in the workplace, um, inequality has increasingly rested on social arrangements in the home. There's evidence to suggest that cultural beliefs about men's greater status worthiness and women's greater communal skills are behind the stubborn inequality in the household division of labor. In particular, such beliefs appear to be behind men's persistent unwillingness to take on primary responsibility for childcare tasks and some women's unwillingness to relinquish these responsibilities even in the face of women's greater involvement in the labor force. Okay, um, now if cultural beliefs acting through social relations maintain inequality in this way, what are the implications for change? Well, research by Eagerly shows that the content of a society's gender beliefs generally reflects the social roles and material situations in which men and women in that society at that time experience one another. Therefore, economic, technological, political changes could eventually erode gender inequality by changing men and women's experiences of one another, putting them in different positions, and therefore eventually changing gender stereotypes. However, there is a major catch to this easy answer because change in shared stereotypes substantially lags behind change in material arrangements that organize people's lives. And two factors contribute to the lag in stereotype change. First, as a lot of evidence shows, stereotypes create a lot of confirmation biases that insulate them from disconfirming experiences. People tend to see what they expect to see. It takes them a long time to realize that they're even seeing things that disconfirm their stereotypes. A second, less recognized factor also contribute to the lag, and that is that these widely shared gender stereotypes are institutionalized. These are the rules of the gender game. They're institutionalized in the media, in normative images of men and women that are embodied in laws and social policies, and in the organization of public places. Um, so they're institutionalized. This institutionalization of shared stereotypes encourages people to presume that these are the rules of most people. Most people share these stereotypes, even if they personally and maybe even their friends don't hold them anymore. But when you think they're the rules, you tend to go along with them in the public places. So they continue, these institutionalized roles continue to guide behavior, even when a lot of people um, given, have given up on them. Um, unfortunately, the lag in stereotype change allows gender inequality to persist in the face of leveling economic and political changes because it creates a window of time in which old ideas about gender can be reinscribed into new ways of living. At the edge of social change, the context in which people first develop new ways of doing things and new types of economic activity, dot-coms and all that, they're not typically formally, bureaucratically organized situations. Instead, they're interpersonal. The guys in the garage, right? The new types of families that are coming together. They're interpersonal. Um, these interpersonally organized situations are precisely the ones where gender stereotypes 
made implicitly available for their participants just by that routine sex categorization are likely to measurably shape behavior and judgments. As a consequence, as the participants carry out the activities that innovate new jobs, new types of community organization, create new forms of technology of businesses and new types of families, their behavior and judgments are shaped by taken for granted gender beliefs that are more traditional than their current innovative circumstances. The effect is they rewrite gender stereotypes into new ways of doing things as they develop them. As a result, the new economy, the new forms of familial organization that emerge continue to embody gender inequality in their structures and practices. The new job gets gender labeled. The degree of inequality may be altered through in this transformation, but the ordinal hierarchy between men and women persists. Okay, this argument suggests that gender inequality will be devilishly difficult but not impossible to stamp out. The secret will be continuing iterative pressure on the cultural presumptions of competence differences in men and women. And how do you keep that iterative pressure up? By changing material circumstances. In other words, a change must be in the material realm or you'll never change the belief structures. Women's increased labor market participation has in fact already shown some um, uh, tendency to change stereotypes about women's instrumental competence. There we've seen the development of the distinct business professional woman subtype who is seen as almost as agenic, although not as nice, as men. The, um, but the lack of change in the expressive component of uh, the expressive competence component of gender stereotypes is a major drag on the movement towards inequality right now. In fact, the action in the gender system this day may be moving to the communal realm as it becomes harder to believe that men and women differ in instrumental competence. People's interest in maintaining gender difference and gender status depend increasingly on cultural assumptions about differences in nurturing ability. And that in turn activates a cultural reservoir of resistance to fundamental changes in the household division of labor or to changes in the status evaluation of caregiving. In my view, then, the cultural battleground in the fight for gender inequality is increasingly shifting to the arrangements we make for caregiving and the implications that these have for women's equality, not only at home, but in the labor force as well. Okay, I'll leave it at that. Shall I just shut this down or? No, leave it for Tron. Okay. Leave it for Tron. Sure. Put it on. As uh, uh, Cecilia said, there's um, uh, gender inequalities is a very multifaceted and uh, multi-layered system. It, it may, in fact, be 
of any system of inequality, the most multi-layered and multifaceted we, we have. Um, because it intersects so strongly with biology, which, which other systems of, of inequality quite don't do. Um, as Cecilia also said, it's important to get a handle on what exactly are today the driving forces in sort of maintaining gender inequality. So what I, what I will do is that I'm going to outlay, first of all, what I see as the main components of this system. And uh, just to list them, I, I have five sources. What, the first is what I call demand side factors. That's what organizations and employers do. The second is supply side factors, what employees do. Then we have societal factors, that's legislation, policies, etc. Then we have cultural factors, and then finally we have biological factors. Now, the, uh, the specific claim you just had uh, heard here is that today, uh, most of the action is found in interpersonal realm, in sort of around cultural factors, how we frame, frame the issues. It's not only that, but that sort of uh, the claim is that that is at least a major source, perhaps the major source. And this occurs then at the interpersonal level. I'm going to, uh, just to foreshadow where I'm going, I'm going to make a, a slightly different claim, or a, a, not a radically different claim, but, but a distinctly different claim. Namely, that the major source we see today is in what, uh, what I call supply-side factors, what employees do, how they, how they orient themselves in the labor market. The extent to which that is due to cultural factors I will leave open. It could very well be, but I, the claim will be specific that we really don't need to bring in cultural factors even to get a handle on, on, on those issues. So that's where I'm, I'm going. Let's see. Uh, let me just read from you briefly what a British historian wrote uh, recently. The British historian of American society, teaching at Oxford. Um, to the surprise of many, the most lasting transformation of American society in the 1960s and the 70s involved not race or a new politics, but the attitudes, expectations, and life chances of American women. Now, uh, the two questions that I will uh, try to say something about now is first, what were originally the sources of disadvantage for women, and what are the challenges today? So let me start with the, with the, with the five sources, uh, main summary of them. Uh, the first source is what one uh, typically refers to as demand-side factors. What do employers do? And this is traditional discrimination, unequal pay for equal work. It is uh, discrimination in who gets hired where, who gets promoted, and who gets fired. And it's uh, unequal pay for or, or lower pay in female-dominated occupations, what's known as a comparable worth movement. Um, historically, these sort of were the main thing that the, the feminist and the women's movement were, were concerned with, or at least took up a very uh, significant portion of their attention, namely to regulate the workplace. Uh, the U.S. was always first in this. 1963 uh, introduced equal pay for equal work. 1964, the... Equality in getting hired and in getting promoted and getting fired. You were no longer allowed to discriminate on those spaces. 
And then finally in the early 1980s uh, on the issue of lower pay for female dominated work, there's a comparable worth movement that started in the US. Most other countries have followed suit. They've uh, passed similar laws. I think the last country in the Western hemisphere to pass a law in this realm was Spain, and it did it two months ago. But that was a tremendous laggard. It was done in early March. Um, uh, the, the issue of uh, what I call value-aided discrimination or comparable worth, that is long gone in the US. One is not com concerned about that. If teachers pay little or earn little and uh, the 90% of them are female, well, that's not something for the government and, and the courts to, to deal with. That's something that has to be, be dealt with uh, in other ways. But, um, but, it, but it's, these are issues still in other countries. Now, what uh, exactly is the role of employers in creating gender inequality today? It's very hard to know. It's, it's a very difficult thing to study. There's, there's no particular conceptual difficulty here. It's just primarily a difficulty of assembling the right kind of data. You can't just uh, ask uh, you know, around and, and ask people how they're doing and uh, a random sample of 10,000 American citizens. You have to go to employers and, and measure how they treat men and women differently. And it, uh, it calls for um, uh, sort of studies of what employers in fact fact do, and that, that's a very unusual sampling unit for, um, for studies of, of labor force uh, um, activity. And, and for that reason, um, it's, uh, we still do not know a whole lot about what goes on um, or what the role of employers is in creating uh, gender inequality. My hunch is that their role is not that important. Uh, if you look at uh, the issue of equal pay for equal work, well, if you, if you asked around, perhaps if I asked in this uh, particular audience, um, maybe not in this audience, but you have, if you asked around in the US, well, most people would say that women earn maybe somewhere between 10 and 25% less than men when they do the same work for the same employer. Well, nothing can be further from the truth. When, when men and women do the same work for the same employer, they earn roughly the same. We're talking about pay differences of 2-3%, 1-2-3%. Two, As for what goes on with promotions, even less is known, and uh, not a whole lot is known about what goes on in hiring. But, uh, but the few studies have been done sort of point consistently to the conclusion that differential treatment from employers appear not to be that important in creating, creating differences. But it's a small empirical record, and uh, it's, uh, it's very hard to... Uh, draw wide-ranging conclusions on the basis of a, of a, a thin empirical record. Um, the second factor source of inequality is what I call supply-side factors. It's very, very simple. This is what employees and uh, prospective employees do. We're talking about educational choice. Tremendous differences between men and women still. Women go to college at much higher rates uh, than men do. Uh, do so in the U.S., do so in most of the Western world today, and it's been the case for quite a while. Um, but they choose different kinds of, uh, of fields to study, men more in technical fields, women more in sort of softer fields. Uh, that, uh, in, in turn, leads to differences in occupational choice. No question about it. Uh, what kind of college degree you, you, you got will have some impact. And then we have an equally heavy process, um, simple, nothing mysterious about it, but it's family behavior. Uh, women t tend to give birth to children, 
they reduce their hours and spend some time time at home. And then, uh, and then finally, we have the differences in preferences, which are not entirely trivial. There, there's large variations between countries in this. But there's a gap between men and women also in sort of what they, what they value in life, their orientations towards, towards certain trade-offs they're willing to make. Um, and these are, 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 are sort of sources of inequality that come not from particular decisions made by employees, by employers, but particular orientations and choices that employees and prospective employees make. Then uh, we have a third source uh, of, uh, of uh, inequality, and that's what I call societal organization. And this uh, it would be in the realm of legislation, what kind of gender equality laws one has. It would be um, in the realm of family policies. Most Western countries now have a, a very similar legislation when it comes to regulating employers. There's uh, laws against discrimination. Uh, when it comes to family le legislation, there's wide variations. US, US does, hasn't done much. Other countries have done, done a whole lot. Um, and then uh, we also have uh, issues around income and wage distributions and policies for these. And those are, in fact, tremendously important for, for, for creating gender inequality. And you can just take a very simple fact. In, um, in the US today, uh, for each dollar a man earns, women may earn about 88, no, 78 cents, so thereabouts, 75 to 80 cents. If you go to Sweden or to Australia or a number of other countries, for each dollar made, um, a man makes, a woman makes about 90 to, to 92, 92, 3 cents. So there's a much smaller gender, gender wage gap. So the question is, is it because it's so rough to be a woman in the US uh, or, or, or what's, what's really going on here? Well, it appears not to be the case that women are treated in a worse fashion in the US than they're treated in Sweden or in Australia or other countries. But it has almost exclusively to do with differences in the income and wage distributions in these countries. In the US, you have a very, very large gap between the bottom and the top. In, in, in Sweden, you have a smaller gap. And you can just take a simple example just to make tease out this point. Look here, at the top we have, this is an entirely stylized example. It's not the, uh, the way the numbers actually are. But just to get, you, to, to get you to think about the role of societal organization in creating gender inequality. Um, at the top we have Scandinavia. We have three occupations. It's low pay, medium pay, and high pay. So um, the wage in the, in the low pay is $10, in medium pay $20, high pay $30. 50% of the women are in low pay, 40% in the medium, and 10% in the high pay. Uh, among men, same pay in the occupation. There is no gender gap in the occupations. But 10% of the men are in the low pay, 40% in the middle, and 50% in the high pay. Now, go down to the US. And uh, we have three occupations here, too. Low pay, medium pay, high pay. 50% of the women are in low pay, just like in Scandinavia. 10% are in the high pay, just like in Scandinavia. And then for men, 10% are in the low pay, 50% are in the high pay, just like in Scandinavia in this stylized example. But the difference is here is that the low-paid occupation, that is Walmart, $5 an hour. The high-pay occupation, not quite as good as Stanford University, but close. That's uh, really way out there. It's an enormous span between the lowest and the highest-paid occupation, which you don't find in Scandinavia. 
the implications for overall gender in inequality are staggering. In this uh, example, we have a 66% uh, gender wage gap of 66% in Scandinavia, the very last uh, column there. Not quite what it is. It, it, it's, it's not that big, but, but how this example is constructed. In the US, women earn less than half of what men, men do. Not quite what it is, but, but the way it's constructed in this example. The only point I wanted to, to make is that societal organization, which is a broad macro feature, has tremendous impact on how, how, how sort of gender relations end up being. Then to the fourth source, and this is where the former speaker spent most of the time, namely cultural sources. And these have to do with sex roles, ambition, how one frames um, the role of men and women in society. And, and I'm going to make a few comments on that. I, I am also of the view that this, this indeed is, is quite important. But, um, but I wouldn't uh, accord it quite the same importance as, as Cecilia did. Um, but, but let me make a couple of, of, of comments. For, first, I just want to point out that there is um, something in one sense, very immediate and appealing to, to this claim that a lot, lot of our inequalities uh, arise in interpersonal interactions. And the reason is simple, very simple, that this is the way we live our lives. It's, it's in, in, in really in personal interactions. We, we sort of meet, meet people at work. We, uh, we meet people in the family. We meet, meet friends. And we don't think about these broad, broad uh, macro-structural features. We don't think that in Scandinavia it's uh, structured differently. But that's, that's sort of not on our radar screen. We don't really think about big laws, about big policies. We think about how we live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. So there's something immediately appealing or thinking about also locating the problems in, in, inter, in interpersonal interactions. I think there's also something else that is very appealing by, by this way of, of approaching the problem. And that, that is more on a, a sort of a basic um, science or, or basic research issue. There's tremendously interesting research opportunities in, in these fields arising now out of a, a cognitive approach to social inequality. This, this, this is what, Probably within the social sciences, that's where some of the, well, not all, but, but a significant part of the interesting action today is sort of uh, measuring cognition, uh, trying to figure out uh, what role cognition has in, in, in social life and, and how, how we think and, and so on and so forth. But the question is this. Can we locate the major problems that women face or the disadvantages they face in the labor market? By, uh, by going down to the interpersonal interaction level, to our cognitions, to our cultural frames, and so on and so forth. And my answer to that would be, I don't think so. I'm not sure, but I don't think so. And uh, let me just give you a very simple example. Um, there is um, the, the probably most written about problem in the issue of gender inequality has to do around the glass ceiling. So lack of women in top positions in management, professions, and so on and so forth. Now, a culture where I come from, I'm, I'm Norwegian, so I grew up way up in, in Scandinavia. And uh, this is a case in, uh, in all of Northern Europe, all of Scandinavia, parts of Germany, probably in, in France too. But uh, a very important group for managerial positions have been, and still is, not quite what it was, but certainly has been engineers. 
So suppose you are to appoint a top manager in year 2000. Uh, very likely that you will look for an engineer. And this is not only a cultural issue. It has to do with industry structure, the kinds of firms they have, and, and the kinds of businesses they run. Well, then you've got to go back about 20 years. You're looking for someone who's 45 to 50 years old. So you've got to go 25 years back. You've got to go back to people who graduated out of technical sort of universities in 1975 to 1980. People who are 20 to 25 years at that point in time. That is the recruiting pool you have when you're looking for, for a, a leader. So what did this uh, pool of uh, graduates look like? Well, in these countries, for each female graduate in engineering, you could stack up 18 men next to them. Each female graduate, 18 men. Now, some of these females have since left the, females have since left the labor force. So maybe 20 years later, for each female, you have 22 men you're recruiting from. That is the reality employers face. Now, no matter how much one tinkered with the interpersonal structure, no matter how much one tried to get rid of implicit biases, unconscious biases, it wouldn't matter one iota. Because this very strong structural fact is that you have this phenomenal undersupply of women with the prerequisite um, qualifications for taking positions in, in these, um, in these kind, kinds of jobs. So, so what, what I would say is that this new, uh, new and absolutely exciting research around cognition and cultural frames and, and non-conscious motives and, and so on and so forth opens up very exciting academic opportunities. But as for pinning what exactly the problem is, I am less convinced uh, for talking about gender inequality. The, the problem how I identify, that, that is a very boring uh, answer to the, to the question. It, it is about broad demographic uh, processes that, that, that evolve over, over 10, 15, 20 years. And you, you don't re require advanced uh, technology to measure it. You don't, you, you don't uh, require anything like advanced theory. You just need to keep, keep track, of, uh, track of the demographics. Uh, last source, uh, biological. Not much is known. Several scientists have started working on it. And it uh, certainly is going to end up being important in public debates. And uh, I guess most of you have followed the fate of a, a former president of, or current president of Harvard University. That was part of what undid him. He, he tried to sort of push that particular line for the lack of women in certain kinds of, of, um, of uh, positions. I think it's way too early, really, to say much what, what, what we're going to learn, learn from this. There, there's suggestive results out. It's probably going to be a lot of pseudoscience, uh, in part because it, it looks very scientific. They measure brain activity and, and, and things like that. But no one quite yet knows what the meaning. Uh, I, I shouldn't say no one, but I think one does not have a good hold on what the meaning of these things are yet. So the question then is, where is the action today? And here, Cecilia and I will join forces a little bit. I, um, I think that, that it really comes from the supply-side factors. It's educational choice and family behavior. And in this realm, there's really two... Uh, well, not in this realm, but, but in the realm of gender inequality, there's really two vanguards. 
One is uh, the US, and that is in the regulation of the workplace, has always been a, a leader there. And the other is Scandinavia, and it's uh, in, in the realm of family policies. And the, the, um, the conjecture that is now out by many is that the role of what goes on in the family and adaptations to family circumstances may be more important for creating gender inequality than any discriminatory actions from employers. And this leads us to a shift from a focus of the workplace to uh, what goes on in the family and its relationship to the workplace. Let me talk a little bit about family adaptations. Just give, just, just give you a few, few, few facts. Here are central facts. If you look uh, at uh, single women to single men, and then the next column, married women to married men. In the US, uh, single women compared to single men, they earn about 88% of what single men earn. If you're married, you earn about 60% of men. Uh, Norway, single women to single men, 90%, 68% among married women to married men. And then Sweden, 94% among single, and then 72% among men. So you just see, very simply, where you stack up in the family uh, structure matters phenomenally for, how, for, for what kind of, uh, kind of uh, wages, wages you ha have. Now the issue is, can uh, family poli policies ameliorate part of this? Can we, can we institute family policies that can help this? Let's look then at uh, Scandinavia, where one has family policies. And these have sort of been gradually rolled out over the last 20 years. And I, I, here taking the period 1980 and 1995, case of Norway. And, and what you do, if you just look at the, um, at the first column, which is overall, these are sort of the, the, the penalty for having one, two, and three children. Here we compare mothers to non-mothers, and mothers with one child, two children, and three children to non-mothers. Well, in 1980, a woman with three children earned 16% less than uh, a non-mother. Um, if they were in the same occupation, well, she earned 7% less than a non-mother. Go then 20 or 15 years later. Extensive family policies have been passed in the meantime. Uh, overall, uh, now there's a very small penalty to having children of 2% for one child, 3% for th two, and 3% for three children. And if they're in the same occupation, there's no penalty to having children at all. It's less than a tenth of a percent. So yes, family policies can do something here. I'm not, it is not the only thing. There are other things going on here. But, but sort of as a um, sort of intermediate answer, yes, they can help. Now, there are some dilemmas in this, and they are not trivial. The first dilemma is really that uh, divorce is widespread. It's as uh, Scandinavia has California-style divorce rates. And uh, they're, they're high. And uh, high divorce rates where mothers are left with child custody in 80 to 90% of the cases. Now this uh, makes it hard for mothers to have careers, and it gives incentives for divorced fathers to work harder and to meet custody payments and, and support their children. So that's uh, just the institution of, of widespread divorce sort of can penalize women and can also reward men in terms of giving the push to be economically more uh, active. But there's an entirely different kind of, um, kind of um, dilemma that we face here. And that has to do with what I alluded to earlier, namely differences in preferences. And let's just give you some rough facts. 
this is hours spent on housework per week among men and women. I, this is very, quite rough, but, but it's, it's sort of, the gist of it is correct. A single man spends on, on average 10 hours on housework. A married men spend about 10 hours on average on housework. A single woman spends also says 20 hours on housework. And um, married women end up uh, spending about 20 hours on housework. Now, uh, what we have is that single men spend about twice, a single woman spend about twice as much time on housework as single men. So the, the kind of conclusion we can draw from this is that women have a preference for better run households than men do, even prior to marriage. This is a little bit of, a bit of it. And once they get married, there's not much change in in, uh, in how the distribution, distribution, distribution of housework is. They end up spending about 30 hours total on housework, women 20, men 10. Just as before they were married, they just, just do it together. So then we can uh, think a little bit about some questions. Among uh, married couples, how should the 30 hours of household work be distributed? It's a reasonable question. And uh, I'll just give you a, a few alternatives. First is husband 10 hours, wife 20 hours. That's, that's sort of roughly the way it is. Status quo, everyone does what they did before getting married. Uh, second uh, option is husband 15 hours, wife 15 hours. That's equal, equal distribution. And then the third option is husband 12 and a half hours, wife 17 and a half hours. Both give a little bit. Women decline uh, their hours a little bit. Uh, men increase their hours a little bit. The total stays the same. Just out of curiosity, um, how many would favor uh, option one here in this class? Now, let's do option two, equal distribution of household hours. How many would favor that? Well, it seems to roughly be, uh, be half the class, at least. Um, a second question we can reflect a little bit on here. What should the total amount of household hours be? Should it be 30 hours? When we just take the female hours and the male hours prior to marriage, add them together. Should it be 20 hours? That's what two men would do. Probably what the gay couples do. They, they each should just take their hours and bring, bring them in and, and, and keep, keep on going just like, like before they joined, joined into a union or somewhere between 20 and 30 hours. Just want you to reflect a little bit of this, because this sort of raises some dilemmas that have to do with this particular contested terrain today in gender inequality, namely what happens in the household. Um, so let's look a little bit at alternative one. The distribution of hours by sex, the same as before marriage. Men do 10 hours, women do 20 hours. This could be seen as unfair. But you could look at it another way. Women get their preferences for a well-run household satisfied, but also have to put in more hours than the men. But they don't have to mer uh, work more than they uh, did before joining into a union. So they're not worse off. They, they just get a nice household, just like they had before, and without work working more. Men get a, get a better-run household, but they appear to value it less than women. So, so you know, they, uh, they, they put in just as many hours as before. It's... Um, it's not, 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 not quite clear how, how you're going to add this up in a distributive justice sense, because it's a little bit how, what you value here in life, too, and how much you're willing to contribute. Okay, let's do alternative two. The hours are divided equally, 15 for men, 15 for women. This can be seen as a fair distribution. 
But men are now relatively worse off relative to pre-marriage hours. They work 15 hours rather than 10. Women are better off. They work 15 hours rather than 20. Uh, women get the nice household that they, they always liked. Men get a household that is better than what they really would like. And they have to put in many more hours than they ideally would. So this would be, could be analyzed as men adapting to female preferences. The norm for how we're going to run the household is set by how women think about it. So this could be seen as unfair to men. And there was, in fact, an anthropologist in Scandinavia who wrote a thesis on this. It was called, if you've gone to Scandinavia, they, they, when you get into people's homes, they eat a lot of waffles. And as women who make the waffles, so don't go to people's homes if you don't like waffles. But, but, but it's, um, and, and the title of this thesis was The Power of the Waffle Hearts. The idea is that once you walk into someone's home, no matter how androgynous these societies are, how, no matter how equal they are, that's where female norms rule. So, alternative three. Men work 10 hours and women work 10 hours uh, per week. This could also be seen as fair. But here, women adjust to men's preferences for how a household should be run. It's a lower standard than they ideally would like. Men are not worse off. They spend the same hours uh, of, um, of uh, doing household chores. Women are worse off in terms of the quality of the household they live in, but they're better off in terms of the number of hours they spend, uh, spend uh, working on it. The point I wanted to make with this is that um, these differences in preferences between men and women, and I, I didn't make this up. These are, you, you can glean these preferences from pre-marriage pre behavior. They are sort of the source of some very interesting conflicts that uh, they could be due to socialization, to culture, what have you. But they are a fact. This is what, what, what we're kind of living with uh, in, in contemporary society. And they're, they're the source of all kinds of interesting conflicts and dilemmas that will also have implications for what, um, what uh, inequality will look like more broadly. Because if you spend 20 hours doing household chores, well, you have a few hours left for doing work in the, in, uh, doing work in the workforce. And um, uh, the issue really boils down to whose preferences should rule. That's one of them. And given whose preferences are given to rule, uh, how should you divide it up? Uh, so, in summary then, shift in where the action is. Employers, clearly less important today than they were. Perhaps not that important at all. Discrimination is no longer a particular driving force. Very hard to know this. But this is one conjecture one could put on the table. Employees, education and family choices, very important. Societal issues, family policies, income and wages, very important. Culture, important, perhaps not the major driver. And biology, not yet known. Let me just end with a quote from Eric Hobsbawm. He's an old historian. He must be 90 years this year. And he was not a person I would trust in political judgment, but he, but he wrote uh, uh, something interesting on gender inequality recently. And what he said, there can be no doubt that the emancipation of women has been one of the greatest, great historical events of the 20th century. Um, the problem for the 21st is to establish what still has to be done and what will probably happen. 
He continues, there is, however, a serious problem, and it has become increasingly serious. The extraordinary difficulties for women of combining high professional posts with being mothers. And he concludes, this has nothing to do with discrimination, but with the natural law that women are the ones who give birth. So it's sort of located in the family sphere, the disadvantages that women today face. Thank you. You should have a microphone, or is, is it this one? I can walk around. I just wanted to briefly say that I would totally agree that you have to look at the power of macro forces, and, and for instance, the pipeline problem and things of that sort. The question is, where is the current processes that are maintaining it? And quite a lot of leveling forces are happening at the macro level, which I think he would agree with. That's why he was saying that employer discrimination is down, all the kind of effects of legal things. So if things are leveling at the macro level, and I would also argue there's increasing pressure at the socialization level in schools and so on to treat boys and girls similarly and so on. That's why I think it's the interpersonal one that's continuing to drive and, and create the other, other structures. You should probably stay. Stand. Did you want to, to respond? No, to that, no okay, that's good. fine. Now let's open let's, it up. Let's yeah. turn it back to questions. Yeah. I'm going to have the, the two of our, our speakers just take yeah. questions directly. I, that's a, I, I, I'm not the right person to speculate on that. I, I mean, I, I take your point that uh, they come from somewhere. Uh, um, but um, from, from understanding where do we go from here, I, I, the, the, I think one way to, to approach that is uh, just say, look, we have a certain distribution of prefer preferences in the population today, and this is what we're going to move forward with. If you want to do, do deep uh, sort of societal change, you've got to start with young people, and that, that's when you, when you start working on constructing preferences uh, and the things, and whether it's in upbringing, whether it's, it's biology, or, 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 or what have you. Yeah. Um, on the teacher case, that uh, part of it is that uh, schooling is, is, is just sort of universally available in most of our uh, most uh, Western countries now. There's tons of teachers. That's an enormous profession. If you can pr depress their wages, you save a lot of money on the on on the sort of. Uh, municipal or city level. So there, there will be, for, for, for simple economic reasons, be enormous pressures to keep teacher, 
future salaries down. The, the, the flip case, uh, which is very interesting compared to the US and, 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 uh, and Europe, is uh, in, in terms of the nursing profession. That is quite highly paid in the US. It is also a female-dominated uh, occupation. In Europe, it's, it's the opposite. It's a rather lowly paid, paid occupation. And, uh, and so something other than economic pressures have to be going, be go, going on there. Do you mean affirmative action in the workplace, or yeah. are we talking about family policy? At school, mm -hmm. uh, workplace. Mm -hmm. It raises the vexed question, which is the, the question that you asked, raises another question, which is whether or not a mixed-sex um, context, because what she was referring to is this research that shows that um, uh, when, when you really get the gender effect, which was also implied by my argument, is in this mixed-sex competition. So you have mixed-sex schools, things of that sort. Um, if you want to integrate jobs, all that is increasing in mixed-sex context, right? And yet those are going to activate these cultural beliefs and may produce what Claude Steele in our psychology department would call stereotype threat, um, which is causing issues about how women were performing in this, um, whether it was the women would compete against other women, they were aggressive and they were not going to learn, you know, just like men did and this and stuff. When they were knew they were competing with men, they chose a safer Um, so in that context, right, so the question is whether or not you have to have, I think you can't give up the mixed sex situation. Part of the women, it's going to be that there is stereotype threat, but if you have this separate, it will never be equal, right? You'll never actually manage to change the cultural beliefs. They've got to be brought into, um, uh, uh, they, they have to all be present in the room. You're not going to work on the beliefs unless you, unless they're being activated in the situation. And your otherwise situation, what happens in those women's schools is kind of irrelevant to what people think of women outside and so on. So I think you have to, you'll have ghettoized occupations. And I think you have to essentially have affirmative action which women are brought into the um, men's situation and it's ugly for a while. And then after a while, I, uh, well, you know, the, the cases where there's only women working together and, and men working together, that those are unusual. But, uh, but there, there's one case where this is done legally, and that's in sports. It's totally sex segregated, and it's uh, so for, for pretty obvious reasons. But, but similar things go on in a few other settings, like in firefighting, in, um, not in the police force anymore. 
uh, parts of construction and, and, and so on and uh, so on and so forth. And I, I don't think, uh, you know, uh, no amount of affirmative action is going to bring uh, hundreds of thousands of women into to doing firefighting. It's, uh, it's, it's unusual, but it's, it's, a, it's not a good idea to spend time discussing <laughs> discussing sort of peripheral o occupations that are that are that, that are very special for various reasons. I think it was a question up here, and then it was then there. there. Was it one up here? Okay, here first. Um, that's really, I mean, in terms of, to answer it in an empirical way, I can't tell you. But I will tell you this, right? Um, the evidence is, as you can imagine, women have competing interests in the main, right? Some of the, talks about the household, gender status police actually favor women in the household, and we saw that in that, that whole thing, right? But in, in the place where the money is, right, um, gender status beliefs tend to favor men. Well, in that context, women have their own sense-making, their own understanding of who they are kind of keeps them in line with, yeah, I have to admit, you know, they, uh, they follow the beliefs too, right? Um, on the other hand, you know, we all have an interest in bettering ourselves. And we don't only think of ourselves as a gendered person. And that part of you that isn't just a gendered person says, yeah, but, you know, I'd really like to make a little more money. So, I don't know, they might, like, hassle me, but I'm going to give it a go, you know? And so you, women have more of an incentive to push against the system than men do. Men have less of an incentive. They may want to push against it because they don't believe in it and they don't like inequality and all that, and they may do so, but that sort of vote with your feet. And so you see more women pushing against it. You'll see they're the first to bail out. You know, basically the low status group is usually the first to resist. Not, no surprise there. But at, um, in the home, um, it doesn't work that way, as you say. And the home is a complex situation. It's, it's a segregated situation in which women have higher status than men, but there's, nobody forgets that men have higher status in general. So there's this kind of weird mixture, you know, that happens there. There's clearly a lot more going on, and, and uh, um, 
work outside the home is one of the more important ones. But, but, I, but I think the basic point is that there's both parties walk into the situation with different thresholds for what they found, uh, find uh, a home, an acceptable home to look like. And, uh, and, uh, and what, why, the, why that is the case, uh, whether it's socialization, whether it's something else, I, I haven't speculated on. But that, that was the only point. That in itself will create, uh, will create uh, or is the source of some potential conflict. Um, you're absolutely right, and there's a lot of evidence that shows, um, in terms of the household division of labor, um, the relative wa the, the ratio of, uh, of the, the husband and wife's wages affects who, how much, who does how much housework. But, but basically, um, a one notch up on, on a man's wage reduces his housework by more than one notch up in, um, reduces uh, a woman's housework. So basically. Um, money buys men out of more housework than money buys women out of housework. So there's a disproportion in that thing. But nevertheless, women whose wages are very equal, very close to equal to their husbands, they have the most egalitarian. Those are the most egalitarian things. They're not equal, but they're the most egalitarian housework things. But a weird thing happens, and this is the interesting stuff about um, that shows the sort of cultural gender dynamics. What happens at these at the end of the tail? in the, um, the households where, um, where the woman makes pretty much all the money and the husband doesn't. Um, in those situations, well, you'd think then the husband must do a, be a house husband, do a lot of work. Au contraire, tends to do very little work. And um, no one really knows the answer to that. They're explaining the residuals. But the classic answer to why that is, is that it's a gender display that um, essentially neither, certainly not the husband, if the husband isn't making the money like he's supposed to, then he can't make it even worse by doing all the girly stuff. So at the very least, he has to refuse to do the girly stuff. And it's possible that the wife thinks that too. If she's out there making all the money and everything, then she's got to show what a good woman she is at home too. It's possible that she participates too. I should just add one thing, there, there's also been I would say dump him, honey, but that's yeah. another story. <laughs> he doesn't make any money, doesn't do any housework. <laughs> several countries, there's also been a change over the last 30 to 40 years in how time in the household is allocated. So, so, so you know, homes look a lot more, uh, less well run today than, mm -hmm. you know, on average mm -hmm. 30 to 40 years ago. And uh, what, what has happened, and this, this is in, in fam families, particularly with children, that uh, the time sort of deducted from cleaning up and stuff has been allocated more to, to being with kids. And you see it particularly among fathers. They, they, have, they have sort of done a lot of the, the heavy carrying. So we happen to live in a period where probably kids get more attention from their parents than, than, than ever. And, and it's happened over, over a, a, a 30, 30, 40 year period now, and it's quite striking. Unfortunately, we're gonna have to call it to a close, and I wanna thank both of our speakers. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University.
please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.